Well, I do want to wish everybody a really happy Mother's Day. I mean, for all the mothers that are with us this morning, we just want you to know that we are super thankful for you. Uh, we are super thankful for the way that moms love their families and for the way that many moms in our church are really seeking in a myriad of ways to love and serve our church family. Uh, annual holidays like Mother's Day just provide a yearly opportunity to especially think about the role that our mothers play and the unique ways that they impact our lives. So in preparation for this message, when I knew that I was uh, doing the Mother's Day message, I just started trying to read very broadly about motherhood. And so I came across some really interesting articles written by Tim Challies, who's kind of a prolific Christian blogger. And he wrote a series of 11 blogs that were very interesting called Christian Men and Their Godly Mothers. And this series looked at some of the most famous theologians and impactful ministers in the past and the role that their moms played in shaping their lives. He wrote about mothers like John Newton, right, who's famous for the hymn Amazing Grace, who was a slave ship captain turned Christian, who impacted William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in abolishing slavery in the late, 18, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. People like Hudson Taylor, who was famous for uh, being the father of inland missions in China. Uh, Christopher Yuan, if you've heard his name, his biography is written in Out of a Far Country, uh, where he was a large drug dealer and really, really into a lot of homosexual promiscuity, who is now, has an international ministry now. Uh, John Piper, Charles Spurgeon, and then Timothy, I don't know his last name, but Timothy of the New Testament. I'd encourage you, man, I would really encourage you to check out some of those blogs. I found them extremely encouraging. And it really caused me to reflect on just my mom's impact on my life. And for moms out there, it might be a real encouragement for you to peruse as well, because most of those stories are not, well, I just poured into my child and I loved my child and he grew and I kept doing that and it just went on forever and was wonderful. Mothering, like all parenting, has ups and downs. It has really significant joys and triumphs, it has real discouragements and defeats, it has times of sure footing and confidence, and as well as times of real uncertainty and doubts. And one of the things I found myself reflecting on over the years is I've done more discipling and, and more just pouring into people in, in full-time ministry, is I, I've thought back and tried to put myself in my parents' shoes a lot more. So I grew up in Colorado, and I went away to college, went to Purdue University, which is ultimately what brought me to Faith Church. And from my perspective, at 18 years old, I was smart, I was responsible, and I was really in no, no danger of falling catastrophically on my face when I went off to college. But as I looked back, and I've seen more of my youthful foolishness and blind spots, I've wondered how my mom held it together when she sent me off to college. I mean, she could have listed 10,000 reasons, not 10,000 reasons for her heart to praise like we just sang, but 10,000 reasons to be really, really concerned that her son might catastrophically fail. So rather than focus on those 10,000 reasons and panic, I'm fairly certain I know what my mom did. She prayed. That was certainly one of the consistent themes. If you go look at those blogs from Tim Challies, those men had mothers that labored in prayer. Luke, Luke 18, Jesus told a parable to show that at all times they, all believers, should pray and not lose heart. 
And my mother exemplified that point in the parable. She prayed consistently. I mean, I saw my mother pray consistently. We prayed together. I know that she led prayer groups for most of the years I lived at home, and I'm quite certain that God answered my mother's prayers. Moms, I'm hoping that this message today will encourage you to understand the importance of the role that you play. I'm also hoping that no matter the emotional condition that you find yourself in today, that you'll be encouraged in the goodness, care, and sovereign plan of our God. We're going to see in the text that we're studying this morning a woman who desperately wanted to be a mom but wasn't able to be a mom for quite a while. And the Lord cared about her pain and heard her. For the first four months of the year, as a church, we studied the book of Philippians, and we just finished that study, and the goal of that study was to help us grow in gospel gratitude. That's our annual theme this year. And this morning, we're really continuing that annual theme, even as we talk about Mother's Day, by specifically thinking about gratitude for God's goodness to mothers. So in order to do that, the text that we're going to study this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Okay, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, and then part of it will also come from chapter 2, but for sake of time, we really don't have, uh, we can't really read through that. Yeah, it's such good news what we looked at in, at the end of Philippians 4, if you remember back a couple weeks ago, about contentment, because of Jesus Christ, we can actually have contentment in all circumstances. As we saw in Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And so even though Hannah, who we're going to be looking at this morning, had some real difficulty, some real challenges, we're going to see the goodness of God and the sufficiency of God is still enough for her. And, and then also we're going to see how that, hopefully see how that's enough for us as well. So this is a longer text this morning, so bear with me. Follow along. We're going to start in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathane Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jer- Jerhoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. Hmm. Well, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina and his wife and to her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up into the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. 
Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, and then returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked of him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bowl and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, with the time we have remaining, we're going to be looking at four actions, four actions that leave a legacy of God's goodness to the next generation. And the Word of God is very clear that one of the primary responsibilities of parents is to teach them the goodness of God so that there is a legacy of the Lord left to the next generation. Like Psalm 78, which says, listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers, right, parents, have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but will tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. And then a very familiar text, if you've been around the church for a while, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You, being parents, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The task that is given to parents, the task that is given to mothers in raising children is an everywhere, everyday, never-ending job, which is partly what makes the first action so incredibly important for us is that we need to recognize our need for God regularly. We need to recognize our need for God regularly. I mean, one of the hallmarks of parenting has to be, especially in the early years, meeting needs, 
right? You just constantly, constantly, constantly meet needs. And many, many times, those needs come at the most inopportune moments, right? Like feedings in the middle of the night or changing diapers and then having to change the diaper right after you left the house on an errand again. And often those needs also don't wait for when you're physically at the top or emotionally or spiritually at the tippy top of the meter. Now, I I should probably preface this next story with, I don't have physical children of my own. But I'd imagine that this sad little vignette in Erica and mine's story and life is what many moms have felt at times. Erica and I, at this point in our life, we had the distinguished responsibility of dog-sitting Erica's younger sister's Yorkie dog, Bucky. Okay, small little thing. This was a number of years ago, so I can't really remember the exact, uh, the exact details of this, but I know that Bucky had been staying with us for a number of days, and we were ready for Bucky to go home because he's a little, well, let's just say, needy. One of the most frustrating needs to us, if you can call it a need, was that he wanted to sleep on our bed with us. But we did not want that. But what he would do is he'd come up to the side of the bed and he'd hop and he'd squeal and make just terrible, pathetic noises that were just far too annoying to just ignore. And you had to help him onto the bed, so it was a little thing, right? But he's just so persistent. So at one time, however we got to this point, Eric and I were able to get to the bed And he didn't really know that we were there per se, so we were hiding, just laying flat on the bed as he's hopping on the side, squealing at us, but we're thinking, just holding our breath, hoping he'll go away. And he did, right? It worked. Now, I'm sure as a mom, you've probably thought before, man, if I could just blend into these walls and my children will just miss me. Right? I mean, because just constantly meeting needs, meeting needs, meeting needs. And I think that what we see in this passage is so important that we ourselves acknowledge that we are needy. I mean, God's goodness, God meets us with His goodness and His fullness in our neediness. And if you're going to leave a legacy of God's goodness to your children and to the next generation, one of the ways you actually do that is by acknowledging your need, acknowledging your weakness, so that your spouse and children can see how God's strength and His goodness is what sustains you, not your own strength. And so if you're going to recognize your neediness, it begins with acknowledging your human limitations, and I would even add to that your human challenges. Hannah had some serious limitations and challenges that's hard for, for us to even grapple with. Like for one, Hannah is one of two wives. Okay, I mean, we don't know whether she's first or second. I'm not sure if it makes it easier to be first or second. Either way, that's a challenge. Right? Marriage between one man and one woman is hard enough. You add another one into the mix, and that's a big difficulty. And add to that, she's called her rival. Then the second big challenge and limitation that we see here is that she had no children. And so we hear, the text is very clear, she had no children because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, I'm sure that there are some in this room that when you read the words, no children, they just prod at longings in your soul that haven't been met. Those unfulfilled longings for a child or maybe perhaps for another child may falsely be tempting you to believe that the Lord's goodness has been closed to you. 
But like Pastor Oakland shared a couple of weeks ago about the secret of contentment, there is the despair of poverty, right, of not having enough, right? So maybe in your scenario, not having a child or not having enough, but there is also the despair of prosperity, right, where you have plenty, but that is not enough. And if you remember the story of Jacob in Genesis, right? Jacob had two wives as well, Rachel and Leah. His uncle Laban tricked tricked Jacob into marrying Leah first, but Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And adding to the difficulty of that situation is their sisters. Well, God blessed Leah with having children, but the way that she kept naming the boys revealed that she was viewing these gifts, God's gifts to her and the children, as a way to win Jacob's love. And so in one place, we read in Genesis 30, where it says, Leah conceived again, bore a sick son to Jacob. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I born him six sons. I mean, Leah is going through the despair of prosperity as far as having lots of children. Simultaneously, her sister Rachel is going through the despair of poverty. She isn't bearing children. And here's the point. Everyone, every mom, every wife, every person in this room is needy, and we need to acknowledge our neediness to the Lord. Acknowledging your human limitations and challenges to the Lord is crucial, and one of the primary ways that we actually see in this text that we do that is by praying our concerns to the Lord. And so one of the ways that you can tell that Hannah is having a real, genuine concern is that she is showing very strong emotions, right? She doesn't come before the Lord and pray in a really put-together fashion, Right, the text doesn't say she calmly, with perfect contentment in her heart, gently asked of the Lord and then gracefully got up and went about her responsibilities. I mean, the text is clear that she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. I mean, you feel like you're in the splash zone when you're reading that with just tears coming at you, or I'm a woman oppressed in spirit, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. I mean, notice how Hannah specifically, passionately is laying before the Lord her concern of being childless and also being provoked year after year every time she comes into the house of the Lord. I mean, a really evaluative question arises from the text for each of us. Are you bringing specific concerns and irritations to the Lord, right? Are you so convinced that God alone is in control and is able to help and wants to help that you plead with him for the answer? I mean, the text is really clear that Hannah's womb is closed because of the Lord, I mean, I certainly don't want to get graphic, but it doesn't matter when Hannah is having her cycle, when they try and conceive. It doesn't matter what kind of diet. It doesn't matter whether it's a full moon or an eclipse or whatever aphrodisiacs they want to try and use. Like, it just doesn't matter. She's not fertile because the Lord has closed her womb. In, in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vrogrup writes this about lament. He says, belief in God's mercy, redemption, and sovereignty create lament. 
Without hope in God's deliverance and the conviction that He is all-powerful, there would be no reason to lament when pain invaded our lives. Todd Billings in his book Rejoicing in Lament helps us understand that this foundational point, or helps us understand this foundational point. It is precisely out of trust that God is sovereign that the psalmist repeatedly brings laments and petitions to the Lord. If the psalmist had already decided the verdict that God is indeed unfaithful, they would not continue to offer their complaint. Therefore, lament is rooted in what we believe. It is a prayer loaded with theology. Christians affirm that the world is broken, God is powerful, and He will be faithful. Therefore, lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. I mean, that's what we see Hannah doing. Mothers and ladies who are wanting to be moms, moms that might be struggling even with the regret of having children for various reasons. I mean, we need to follow Hannah's example and cry out to the God who is faithful, who cares, and is able to help. Now, some really good news is that the Lord knows and weighs the heart. A key theme, if you've read through the books of 1st, 2nd Samuel, is that the Lord weighs the heart, and man continually struggles to just look on the external. The first King Saul stands out because he's taller than anybody, right? Sadly, I have to admit that height doesn't actually qualify you for leadership. I wish it was that simple. But then, The second king, King David, he's the youngest of his brothers, he's shorter, and him being chosen as king was a real surprise to his whole family and even to Samuel who anoints him. But God looks at the heart, and we read in 1 Samuel 16, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That's Saul. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I mean, we find the same thing here with the high priest Eli. The high priest looks at Hannah, looks at the actions, weighs them, and quickly concludes she's drunk. Thankfully, the Lord looks at her heart, weighs her heart, and Hannah acknowledges this in her prayer of praise in chapter 2 where she says, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. God can accurately weigh our actions because he knows our heart. So I want to speak to moms, I want to speak to moms, but I do do hope that everybody listens in because this can be applied to you as well. I mean, moms, is the judgment and the weighing of, of the Lord of your heart what really matters to you? I mean, we are certainly seeing a toll in many, many ways uh, for children and teens, the way that social media is, is just wreaking havoc in their lives. But moms, are you seeing the toll of living for the eyes and the opinions of others and being the kind of mom that your family, your friends, your stroller jogging group or school moms want you to be? I mean, we're living in a culture that is changing just so rapidly, and yet culture, a culture that is more and more opinionated and demanding. And motherhood might be one of the more challenging seasons to navigate in this culture. I mean, I spoke with a recent father a few weeks ago, um, and he was, I was just asking about his wife, and he was telling me, he made the comment that everybody has their opinion on what you have to do to raise your child. 
right? Not, not suggestions or opinions, I guess, but absolutes of you have to do this, right? So, for example, you have to feed your child this way or this kind of diet. Here's how you have to order the schedule of your child. Here's how you have to approach the philosophy of toys, if you even knew there was one. Here's how you have to discipline and you have to stay at home with your kids, or you have to work outside the home because they need to see a mom who works outside the home, or whatever combinations there are. The point is the culture is certainly weighing the actions and judging, but if their judgment and weight doesn't agree with the Lord, man, my hope is that you will trust in the Lord. I believe that trust begins with acknowledging your need But then a second action to help you leave a legacy of God's goodness is to continue, emphasis on continue to trust God through trials. I mean, the emphasis in this point really has to do with enduring months and years of whatever trials the Lord brings. Sometimes I think it's really easy to miss the amount of time that Scripture covers, right? Because sometimes Scripture spends chapters and chapters over events that don't cover much time, and then other times a few verses cover a whole lot of time. And 1 Samuel 1 covers a lot of time. I mean, you read the words, it happened year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, right? This was not a one-time trial. This was not, well, they went up, you know, to the house of the Lord once, and, and, and Panina made an offhanded comment once, so Hannah prayed and the Lord answered. That is not what is going on. It is persistent, and yet Hannah continued to trust the Lord. One commentator made this very interesting point about the Lord closing Hannah's womb. He said, Hannah's uh, sterility made her vulnerable to ridicule. Her rival provoked her in order to irritate her. Was this what the Lord had in mind when he closed Hannah's womb? The thoughtful reader recalls that in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the people of Israel were forced to endure much much torment before the Lord delivered them. Remember the the slavery they went through? Perhaps the portrayal of Hannah's affliction was meant to draw this parallel to mind, thus preparing them for an act of divine deliverance in Hannah's behalf, right? As hard and as long and as challenging as the trial is that Hannah endured, what we know from this vantage point in history is that God was using this to bring about an incredible deliverance, not only for Hannah but also for Israel and also for us, right? The son that Hannah has plays a significant role in the, in the plan of salvation history. Samuel is the one that anoints King David, and we know obviously that, King da- that Jesus Christ is in the line of King David through whom salvation ultimately comes. And so the point is really clear. Trust God no matter how difficult and no matter how long the trial is. And, and the historical context of Hannah also helps us understand that we need to do this even when culture challenges your commitment. I, I mean, maybe you've been listening up to this point and you'd say, well, you know, that's, that's all well and great, but like, man, just look at the culture in which we live, right? It's not practical to trust in God in a culture like this. Our culture is too wicked. There's too much opposition, So maybe like a famous political figure said in December of last year, you might echo with this, where it said, I'd love not to have to participate in cancel culture. I think most of us would enjoy that, but 
I'd love that it didn't exist, but as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game, okay? We've been playing t-ball for a half a century while they're playing hardball and cheating, right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing. Wow. It's gotten us nothing while we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. So, is our culture really so wicked that we can't follow the clear teaching of Scripture anymore? Right? Turning the other cheek, which is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, friends, that argument right there doesn't work on so many levels. And one of the major reasons that doesn't work is because the historical context in which Hannah is living is really, really bad as well. The time period Hannah was living in was characterized by Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, this time period in history was chaotic, wicked, and characterized by lots and lots of idol worship. If you want to have a depressing Mother's Day, read through the book of Judges and stop. It is horrendous. And the text indicates, even though Hannah's household wasn't perfect, uh, they, they still were not just giving in to the cultural pressure. So we read, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And, they, and then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. And my hope is that when you read about the commitment that they had and how they would go up year after year, even in a wicked, horrendous culture like the one that they lived in, is that that would encourage you to make commitments to, to, that would oppose the cultural pressure to forsake the Lord. Right, And for one, I hope that one of the commitments that you would make as a parent, as a mother, would be to be in church faithfully week in and week out. I mean, our culture wants to make online church or whatever serves you or is most convenient the norm. Make the commitment to be here with your family, worshiping the Lord every single week together. We live in a culture that loves vacations and loves overworking, however those go together, and loves making no commitments. (laughs) All of that makes committing to church week in and week out hard, but that's part of how you communicate the worthiness and goodness of our God to the next generation, right? And that's even true when rivals rip you down. I mean, verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb, and it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she'd provoke her. Some of you can probably relate to enemies and rivals that know exactly what issue and buttons to push in your life to make it really, really hard for you to be faithful to the Lord. I mean, the sad reality is that maybe for some of you, it's your parents. For some of you, maybe it's siblings. For some of you, maybe it's an adult child that's seeking to attack and erode your commitment to the Lord. For some moms and wives in this room, you might have a husband that is attacking your commitment to the Lord. Those kinds of relationships are hard. 
But I hope that what we see here is a God who is close and near to the brokenhearted and is near to people that even have rivals that are living in their own home. And Hannah's situation, she also has the added problem of terrible spiritual leadership. Okay, we're introduced to Eli, the high priest, and his two sons in chapter 1, but we don't learn much about them until chapter 2. But we do see Eli, where he sees Hannah praying in the temple, and he quickly accuses her of being drunk, and we know that how the words and the tone and the approach that Eli took to Hannah, her conclusion was very, very clear that she saw that what he was saying was that she was worthless. That's a strong word. Her response is, don't count me as a worthless woman. Right? That's not what you want to hear from the highest spiritual authority in your life, that you're worthless. Ironically, what we learn about Eli's sons in the second chapter is that the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Right? I mean, Eli's sons are such a mess that God even condemns Eli because he didn't do enough to, to reign in his sons, that God basically says, everybody in your family and your priesthood is going to die. And we see that fulfillment in Samuel. So the context that Hannah finds herself in is challenging on almost every single front. A rival wife, bitter circumstances of having no children, wicked culture, and a hypocritical, wicked priesthood. But that doesn't keep her from seeking and trusting the Lord. Hannah's name actually means grace, and what we see in the text is that even what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that my grace is sufficient for you, and no matter what you're going through, seek the grace of the Lord and know that it is sufficient for you. Now, a third action is to keep Christ central as parents, and the way this story turns when God answers Hannah's prayer for a child is remarkable. And it really shows where Hannah's heart truly is. Often when people pray and ask God for some blessing, and God actually grants them that, 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 that blessing, the temptation is to clamp down on that blessing and make sure you never, ever lose it. But that kind of response to God's blessing actually misses the point, right? In this scenario, children are gifts that belong to the Lord, Right, notice what Hannah vows in verse 11, give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Now, on first glance, this might look like Hannah's trying to manipulate God, right? I'll do this if you do this, and we are certainly not supposed to manipulate the Lord, but, but the way that you tell that this is not her heart is by what she does when she gets what she asked for. And so we read in verse 27, for this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition. So one, she acknowledges it's from the Lord, which I asked of him. So I also have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. Now, what's amazing about this is that the child that she longs for and that she prays for, she ends up giving away and hardly ever sees him. Right In the text, she leaves him at the temple where he's going to serve the Lord in the temple for the rest of his life. 
What Hannah proves is that the blessing and gift of her son was ultimately for the Lord and for his glory, and she viewed her son's story in the much, much bigger plan of God's redemptive history as opposed to just seeing her son in her tiny, small story. And moms, I hope that you'll see your children as gifts, right? Wonderful gifts from the Lord, but ultimately gifts that are to be used for the glory of of the Lord and not your own self-fulfillment. A couple of resources if you're looking for ways to, in how to approach children as gifts in that way. And I encourage you to look uh, look at Rob Green's book, Tying Their Shoes, and then another book that I'd encourage you to look at is uh, Age of Opportunity. Um, both of these resources will help you see how God's gift of children, how you actually steward them for the Lord as opposed to using them yourself, right? And so if you do that, what's going to happen is that Christ is going to be exalted before your kids. I mean, that is our mission, is that Christ would be exalted before our children. And Hannah's prayer of praise in chapter 2, it shows that that's what she's after. What she says in verse 9 and 10 is she says, For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. I mean, what you see in her words here is that Hannah knew that the ultimate salvation from her adversaries wasn't coming through the birth of her son. She knew that the ability of her womb to bear a child wasn't bringing her salvation. Instead, she looks forward to his king, to his anointed who will ultimately bring salvation and victory. And moms, I hope that you're looking to communicate in a million ways every single day to your kids that your strength, your abilities, your works are not to be exalted, no matter how exalted those things actually are. They are not where salvation comes from. And I hope that you're seeking to instill a legacy of exalting Christ in your home and in your children as the only hope and means of salvation. It's not going to be your child's academic performance or athletic accomplishments or popularity or likability that really brings true joy and salvation, right? Rather, it's the finished, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that is our deliverance. And what we see is that Hannah looked forward dimly. I mean, she's looking forward dimly to that salvation, to the anointed, which we actually get to look back on and clearly see. And I hope that if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've never actually acknowledged your need for Jesus Christ in order for your only hope of salvation— I mean, my hope is that this Mother's Day might actually become your birthday where you choose to be born again in Christ alone, right? And if you're not sure what that actually means, if you're not sure what it means to have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I mean, I would encourage you, please reach out to one of your service pastors because we would love to open up the Scriptures and help you understand what it truly means to have a relationship with Christ and know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. Now, real quickly, one last action to leave a legacy of God's goodness for the next generation is to give gratitude for God's grace. 
Okay, God, God, uh, Hannah didn't stop praying when her request was answered, right? It fueled more prayer. That's one of the ways that you can tell that she's actually pursuing the Lord. Um, and even more than, than fueling thanks when, her, when the request was answered, she gave thanks to the Lord before the answer was made, right? And so she actually gave thanks that her request was even heard, right? Verses 18 to 19 make it really clear that she went home with thanksgiving even before the answer. I mean, this is a remarkable, remarkable example of God's, uh, of, of God's, um, of her thankfulness to the Lord. What we saw in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, right? Not like, hey, when, you're, when the prayer is answered, give thanks, but like with thanksgiving, and that's what we actually see her doing here. And I hope that you're thankful that we can even make requests of God and that He actually listens. I mean, if you think about your own life, there's plenty of things you probably go, I don't want to listen to. The Lord listens to us. And I hope you'd rejoice in that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then, rejoice in your salvation. Hannah rejoices in her salvation. We have already seen that Samuel, her son, was not her ultimate salvation. If I can say it this way, that was only a mini deliverance, a mini small salvation, but the ultimate deliverance and salvation comes from the Lord alone, right? And God watches over her, and we see this so clearly. 1 Samuel 2.9, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail." I mean, I really hope that the story of Hannah encourages you to know that God cares and watches over you more than anybody else. I mean, if that's true, I hope you'll do exactly what we've been thinking about as a church this entire year, is that you'd grow in gospel gratitude. Mothering and parenting from a position of gratefulness makes parenting, one, a whole lot easier. (laughs) It makes it a whole lot more enjoyable. And more than that, It brings glory and honor to the Lord, and that's what helps you bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that you can actually leave a legacy of God's goodness to the next generation. Well, let's pray to the Lord to help us with that. God, we thank you that you are a God that cares. Lord, we know that you're a God that cares. Ultimately, when we look at how you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us, Lord, there is only one conclusion we can make, and, is, and that is that you have loved us so much that you were willing to give up your son for us. But more than just being a God that cares, Lord, you're also a God who is intimately involved in every detail of our life and sovereignly in control. Lord, there are words in this text that, Lord, are certainly hard to wrestle with, like the words that you closed Hannah's womb. And Lord, there's things in our life, Lord, that you sovereignly are, um, Lord, doing and maybe preventing us from getting things that we want. But Lord, what we see that you did in Hannah's life is this ultimately was something that was used remarkably for your glory and ultimately for deliverance. God, I pray that you would help us, like Hannah, Lord, to go to you consistently and to pray, to cry out and lay our cares before you. But then, Lord, to also rejoice and to give thanks, Lord, knowing that you hear us. Lord, I I think every person in this room has a burden for their children. 
has a burden for the next generation. Lord, we certainly need your help with that. So, Lord, would you help us be faithful to what you've called us to do, and we will leave the rest up to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.